Well, greetings to everyone. Um, thanks. I appreciate the worship team, and uh, I'm glad I'm not actually alone here. Out of love to have um, all of you joining us today, but I pray that today's sermon would be of great encouragement to all of you. So, let me just um, open in prayer. And we'll go to our text. Father, we thank you for this wonderful day. Thank you for your word. And thank you for the privilege of preaching your word. I pray that you would just uh, be with us today. And that you would encourage our hearts through your word. Father, I pray that you would help us, Father, illumine our minds and stir up our hearts to love you more and more as we go through your word and hear what you have to say, that it change our lives, oh God, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So the text that we will be reading from is uh, Psalm 73, so if you just turn there, and um, Psalm 73 from verses 1 to 28. So I'll just read it for us and then um, we'll take it from there. A Psalm of Asaph. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, 
but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Is the word of the Lord. One of the most remarkable features that I find in the Psalms is the honesty uh, of the psalmists about their own lives and experience. They don't hesitate to reveal truths about themselves that we would normally shy away from. I find that a lot of Christians uh, like to give the impression that they're always walking on the mountaintop and that the sun is always bright and shining to them. But in the Psalms, we meet godly men who are broken, men who know what it's like to be cast down, to be sorrowful, to be in turmoil and grief. And in this Psalm, the Psalm that we're considering today, it's no different. Here we meet a man who expresses his frustrations over the injustices that are in the world. And as we look at our own world, our own country, we can relate to the same frustration. We know what he's talking about. Why is it that evil, wicked men get away with murder? A lot of, a lot of murderers and drug dealers and rapists and thieves in this country just don't get arrested. And you wonder, why is the police not doing anything about it? Or you could also be wondering as a Christian, and this is a more fundamental question, you could be wondering, why is God silent? Why is God not doing anything about it? Doesn't he, doesn't he see what's happening? Why is the sovereign, sovereign Lord of the universe allowing them to get away with this? So that's the struggle of this psalm. Perhaps all the crime and corruption in this country has caused you to question God's goodness and justice. You're probably wondering, if God is good and just, then why doesn't he punish the wicked? Why does he let him let them get away with it? That's the question that this psalm addresses. And thankfully, it begins with a triumphant affirmation of God's goodness, specifically to those who are pure in heart. It says in verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So everything else that follows in this psalm, even when the psalmist speaks about his own struggles with the prosperity of the wicked, is aimed at confirming and supporting that opening statement, that God is good to those who are pure in heart, which is a hopeful beginning for those of us who are struggling to reconcile God's goodness with the reality of evil that we see in the world. So this man has good news for us, and... You'll also see that he didn't reach this conclusion very easily. It was after struggling and wrestling with God about this issue. So he says God is good to those, to, to those who are pure in heart. He says that in hindsight, but it was after much struggling and wrestling. He struggled with what we often struggle with when we think of God's goodness and the evil that exists in the world. So let's look at what he struggled with. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he said he almost lost his footing. He, 
he, he almost stumbled in his faith. And why? Uh, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he almost stumbled because he looked at the world around him and he saw wicked, evil men living opulent lives and enjoying great comforts and blessings. And he's just wondering if God is good exclusively to, is exclusively to those who are pure in heart, then why does he seem to be blessing the wicked so much? Why doesn't God frustrate their plans? Why, how do we account for the apparent prosperity of those who hate God if God is good to those who are pure in heart, not the impure? These are the kind of questions that shook his footing in many ways. And now he's about to describe the wicked in greater detail from verses 4 to 11. And you'll start to see exactly what it is that really ticked him off about the wicked. So verse 4, he says, They have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. So they enjoy long, healthy lives, free from diseases. Verse 5, They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. These guys don't struggle Though they don't go through the struggles that most people go through. It's like they, they live far, far above the common struggles of others. So, I mean, just imagine these guys, um, for example, during a worldwide pandemic like we're in now, during COVID where so many people are affected, um, and you've got these God-haters who kind of just breeze through life as though nothing's happening, you know. So this is what he's observing about the wicked. And then verse 6, Their pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. So as a result, they are arrogant and they look down on everyone else. They see themselves as far above the herd and they show off their pride as a status symbol that they wear around their necks for everyone to see. And even worse, these are violent men. So they oppress and trample on others in order to get ahead. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness, their hearts overflow with follies. So they have, they have way more than their hearts could wish for. These are, these are self-indulgent, greedy men who seem to just get whatever they want all the time. Verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. This has to do now with their speech. And what comes out of their mouths. Not only are they physically abusive, but they're also verbally abusive. They mock and ridicule those that they proudly look down upon. In verse 9, he continues to describe the arrogance of their speech. He says, They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. So, everywhere you go, their arrogant speech can be heard. They show off their prosperity to everyone, everywhere. They want to be seen and heard in every street corner. Like, look at me. Look look what I've got. Check me out. Check out my new G-Wagon. Check out my new Ferrari. They, they want to be scared. They can't keep quiet about all these things, all that they've got. They want everyone to know. That's their arrogance. And uh, look at what it says in verse 11. And they say, how can God know? Is their knowledge in the Most High? I mean, what insolence. Honestly, they've basically concluded that 
we're going to do whatever we want to do and get away with it because God can't see it. God is ignorant. So we are just going to be on our worst behavior and God can't do anything about it. I mean, this is a total insult against the omniscience of God. Like, how can God know? There's no knowledge in the Most High. And then verse 12 kind of summarizes uh, this description of the wicked. It says, Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So for all their, their crime and corruption, their lives just keep getting better and better with millions of rands in their bank accounts. These are the kind of people that we're talking about. That's the wicked. That's the life of the wicked as far as we see it in the world. So what about the righteous? What does the righteous life look like? Let's find out. Verse 13 and 14. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. I mean, this is a painful verse to read. This is, this is heartbreaking. It's basically saying, I've lived a holy life before God. I've tried everything. I've tried to serve God as best as I can, faithfully. And what do I get for that? Trouble and suffering and pain. I mean, I think we can all relate to what he's talking about here. Perhaps you're a parent and you've done the best you could to raise your kids in a godly manner. And you've given up, you've even given up on your dreams and a successful career so that you can homeschool your kids. You've, you've done, you've made many sacrifices for them. You've prayed so many times for their salvation. You've pleaded with the Lord countless times, even with tears in your eyes for their salvation. And yet as you look at your kids, they're just becoming more and more rebellious. And yet you've got your neighbor next door. He's an abusive parent, doesn't care about his kids. He's done the worst things possible. And you look at his kids, his kids are just doing so well. His kids are saved. They're the most excellent kids in society. Respectful, obedient, submissive. And you're thinking, how in the, what have I done wrong? What, what have I missed? How is it that this guy's kids are so well, well, are doing so well and his kids are obedient and they are even saved? And my kids, though I've done everything I could, they, they're just getting worse, worse and worse. Or another example, perhaps you're, you're a diligent, you're, you're a diligent employee at work and you've worked so hard for, for your company, you've made many sacrifices for it, and uh, you've served faithfully and diligently with integrity as unto the Lord. And when COVID strikes, you're the first person to get retrenched. And yet you've got your, your colleague, lazy guy, comes late to work most of the times, is very dishonest in his work, always trying to cut corners, and he sometimes even takes, he's sometimes even taking credit for some of the hard work that you've put in when the boss is not around. So this is the kind of guy, and yet while you're getting retrenched, this guy gets a promotion as senior manager of the company. I mean, you can just, you can just feel the injustice of it all. It's not, it's just not fair, and there's something in our hearts that just cries for justice. 
that no, this is wrong. This is wrong. Why is it that I'm not, why, why are things not working out so well and yet I'm trying to live honestly. I'm trying to live an honest life before God and things are not going my way. And this guy, this wicked guy who's trying to cut corners, get the wee easy way out, everything's just going well for him. From better to better, like they, things just get better and better for him. It's really hard. It's really hard being a Christian in a world like this where evil always seems to win the day. And we're reminded of this countless times over and over again as we scroll through our phones on social media that the good guys always go last while the bad guys take first place. And some of them even rub it in your face. They're not just going to Enjoy their prosperity from, from a distance. They rub it in your face. Like, well, I don't believe in your God. I don't care to serve Him. But look at my life. My life looks a lot more pleasant than yours. So why should I serve your God? I mean, is this the kind of Christianity you're advocating where God treats you in this manner? Where God treats you so harshly? Look, no thanks. I don't want to have, I don't want to, I don't want anything, to, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Just keep it. You know, and you start to wonder, is there any point or any value in being a Christian in a world like this, in this fallen world where evil seems to win the day all the time? It just, just seems as though God deals with the wicked a lot more generously than he does with the righteous with his own children. And this is how the psalmist feels. This is his frustration as he looks at the world. He's thinking, Lord, I'm your child. I'm your covenant child. I'm a Jew for crying out loud. I'm, I'm part of your covenant people. Why are things going so bad for me and so well for this wicked guy? That's his frustration. And then in verse 15 and 16, he goes on and says, If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. So, he had been keeping these things to himself. He could not understand how God could allow the, 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 the wicked to prosper and the righteous to languish in suffering. But he decides, let me shut up because this might cause an offense to God's people. So let me keep these things to myself. And he's just getting more and more frustrated about this. It's, it's wearing him down. And to be quite honest, the fact is, from a human perspective, it, the opening statement of this psalm really doesn't make sense. That God is good to those who are pure in heart. That opening statement, from a human perspective, really doesn't make sense. Because the opposite seems to be true, as far as we can see it. God seems to be treating the the wicked a lot more graciously and more generously than he does with his own children. Trying to understand God's dealings with the righteous and the wicked, it's, it's an impossible task. It's a wearisome task, as he says. And the glib, superficial solutions and explanations to this problem are just not going to cut it. This is what this is what prosperity gospel preachers have been trying to do. They give 
the superficial solutions to this problem. And it just doesn't help. It doesn't help simply saying, well, you just need to have more faith and believe God for better health and wealth, bro. It doesn't help saying that because a lot of giants in the faith have died poor and in much affliction. Just read, just read Hebrews 11 and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Giants in the faith who have died in much pain and poverty. Or to say, okay, no, the wicked will eventually become poor. That doesn't help either. Because a lot of, a lot of wicked people die rich and healthy. They die without pangs. Remember verse 4, they have no pangs until death. So that's not a helpful solution either. We need something better. We need a better solution than that. Now let's see what solution and hope this psalm offers as we go on. Verse 17, uh, to take it from verse uh, 16, he says, When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Verse 17, Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. This is a pivotal point here where everything changed. This the significance of going into the sanctuary of God is that he started seeing reality now from God's perspective. God's sanctuary redirects our focus away from ourselves and our circumstances to God and His redemptive purposes, His, His ultimate purposes. It helps us to basically see the bigger picture. There were certain things and facts about the wicked that he had not been taking into consideration. He was only looking at them and measuring them based on their temporary blessings and comforts without considering their ultimate end, their eternal end. And this is the perspective that we all need. Our perspective needs to change, uh, both with regard to the prosperity of the wicked and the suffering of the righteous. And this is the kind of perspective that will help us to see how God is truly good to those who are pure in heart, despite the apparent contradictions that we see in reality in the world around us. So we'll, we'll consider the wicked first from God's perspective, and then we'll look at the righteous. So in verse 18 to 20, the wicked... Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. So as you can see, the position of the wicked is a dangerous one. They are on slippery places. All that they have their pomp and glory is but temporary. Death and judgment are certain when God rouses himself. The wicked who seem so powerful and almost indestructible now will be destroyed in a flash when God arises. So we need to look beyond their glory and wealth in the present and just see the judgment that awaits them in the future. That's the first thing that we need to do. You know, the prosperity of the wicked 
reminds me of a, a particular artwork by Damien Hirst. It's um, he's a contemporary artist. Actually, not my favorite of artists, to be quite honest. Um, I don't like a lot of his works, but I do like this one particular work of his. It's called "For the Love of God." Um, Josh, can you please put it up for us, uh, for everyone to see? It's called "For the Love of God." You don't have to get stuck in the title. It's it's irrelevant to my point. Yes, that's it. That's the work. Uh, I I kind of like it. I I really do like it. So as you can see, it's a it's a skull. It's a skull. It's actually it's actually a real skull, and um, dates around 1810, if I'm not mistaken. And it's cast in platinum and covered with diamonds all around it. They're like 8,600 pieces of diamond in that one piece of artwork. 8,600 diamonds. That's a lot. So this work probably costed about $14 million. Convert that to rands. That's like $196 million rands. That's a lot of money just to produce an artwork. But (laughs) what I really like about this work is that it reminds us that death is an inevitable reality. No matter how much we try to disguise it or decorate it, it's coming. We all know, we all know what lies behind the diamonds and the platinum in that picture. We're not fools, right? It's just a dead old skull. That's all there is to it. We can't be fooled by all the glitter and all the diamonds around it. In reality, it's just a dead skull. It's lifeless. There's no life there. And in the same way, let us not be fooled by the apparent prosperity of the wicked. Behind all the gold and the glitter is nothing but death, eternal death and corruption, and decay. They may try to hide behind their riches, but we all know that they are by nature children of wrath, dead in their trespasses and sins. That's their reality. In the end, their glory glory and pomp will be brought to an end. Listen to what James says about these wicked, prosperous men in James 5, verses 1 to 4. Come now, you rich, weep, and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver is corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That's their end. With all their gold and earthly treasures, that is their end. Eternal hardship and misery. You see, when you start to, when you start to look at the wicked from God's perspective, you can't really envy them. You can only pity them and feel sorry for them. Because you understand what's coming their way. Charles Haddon Spurgeon says, God knows that the dying repose of sinners is but the awful calm which heralds the eternal hurricane. 
That's their end. They're down for destruction. Now look at how look at how his mind is changing in verse twenty one and twenty two. He says, "When when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you." After seeing reality from God's perspective, he now realizes what a complete idiot he was to even envy the prosperity of the wicked. He's now thinking, "Yo, how could I have?" How could I envy a perishing man's prosperity? If this is their end, how can I envy them? Now, this is the perspective that we need. We need to clear up in our heads when we think of the, the prosperity of those who are wicked. So what about the righteous? Because you probably might be listening and thinking, okay, I, I get it. Uh, the end of the wicked is destruction and uh, God's wrath is against the wicked. Okay, fine, I get it, but I still feel like my life is tough. I still, I mean, you said that God is good to the pure in heart, but I still feel like providence has dealt harshly with me. I still feel like I'm having things tough in this life. So what hope is there for me now in the present? What perspective do I need uh, in dealing with my own sufferings? And that's what the, the next verses are all about. So in the next verses, we'll look at three manifestations of God's goodness toward the righteous. Three manifestations of God's goodness towards the righteous. From verse 23 to 26. Verse 23, the first one, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. So firstly, God's goodness is manifest in his continual presence with us, upholding and sustaining us in our sufferings. I'll repeat that. God's goodness is manifested in his continual presence with us, upholding and sustaining us in our sufferings. We're not alone in our struggles. Our Lord promises never to leave us nor forsake us. And that should bring us great comfort as we walk through this life. He's there with us. He's not absent. He's not left us all to our own. So that's the first manifestation of his goodness, his presence. He's with me. He's, he holds my right hand. The second thing in verse, second manifestation, verse 24, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will receive me to glory. So secondly, God's goodness is manifested in the way he leads us and guides us through his word until we are glorified with him in heaven. I'll repeat that. God's goodness is manifested in the way he leads us and guides us through his word until we are glorified with him in heaven. We're pilgrims on this earth. This world is not our home. It will soon pass away. God's purposes for us is not to try and maximize our comfort as much as possible in a world that will soon be destroyed and burned down to the ground. That's not God's prime, that's not God's purpose for us here on earth. His primary concern is to lead us safely home as a shepherd through His Word and His Spirit. We're just passing through this world and God's aim is to help us get through it, help us pass he guides us and 
directs us through this journey. You know, I really encourage everyone to read The Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. It's such an excellent book and I think it gives such a helpful perspective on this very point. And thirdly, so we've seen God's uh, goodness uh, is manifested in His continual presence and secondly, in the way He leads us and guides us through His Word until we're glorified with Him. Thirdly, in verses 25 to 26, He says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. So thirdly, God's goodness is manifested in the way He offers us Himself as our greatest good. I repeat that. God's goodness here is manifested in the way He offers us Himself as our greatest good. You know, one of the reasons why we envy the wicked so much is because we think that they have what will really make us happy. But the message of this psalm is that only God can make us happy. He wants us to be weaned off of comfort and wealth and health and ease so that we may be fully satisfied in Him. And that is a million times better than what we can get in this world. It's a million times better than what this world can offer us. To have God is to have everything. But to gain the whole world and not have God is to have absolutely nothing. I don't care how rich or healthy you are. If you don't have God, you're broke. You have nothing. You you have zero. You are empty. You're bankrupt. And as we grow older and our faculties fail and our strength weakens, God promises to be our strength. When everything in our life crashes and falls, God is the unshakable rock on which we stand. Know the song, When all around my soul gives way, He then is my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. That's the message and comfort that we get from this song. This is a truth that the psalmist learned through his experience. He had, he had to first be stripped off of everything that he had hoped in, in order to realize this. He needed, he had to be stricken and rebuked and crushed and flattened in order to realize that God was all that he needed in life. And that's often our problem as well as as people today, we don't realize that God is all that we need until He's all that we have to hold on to. And sometimes, very often, God takes away those comforts, takes away some of our most trusted comforts and pleasures just to teach us this lesson that, look, I'm all you need. You don't need anything else. You don't need anyone else. I'm your sufficiency. I'm your all in all. Find your joy in me. When all else fails in life, God is our strength and delight. And this is the perspective that we need to go through our sufferings. So this is why the psalmist can say without a shadow of a doubt that God 
truly God is good to those who are pure in heart. He's starting to see it. It's starting to make sense. The greatest demonstration of God's goodness toward us is seen in the way he gives us himself through his son, Jesus Christ. Remember what Peter says? Christ died. Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's the end of the gospel. That's the purpose of the gospel. That's the goal of the gospel, to bring us to God, to bring us to this point where we enjoy endless fellowship with God. This is the greatest good in the gospel. Jesus Christ came to die to give us this, to give us God. God would not have been good to us if he gave us everything in life and did not give us himself. But when God gives us himself, regardless of whatever else he denies us in this life, he's being infinitely good to us. And this is the perspective that we need. And I tell you, this is, this is tough for me to accept at times because to be quite honest with you guys, I, I love the good life. I'm, I'm just gonna lay it out there. I love the good life. There are a lot of things in this life that I enjoy. You know, I enjoy great coffee, great food, great music and art like Damien Hurst, you know, for the love of God. I enjoy these things. I enjoy traveling to see Great places like Stellenbosch and Camps Bay. and I love these things. I mean, I was, I remember when the Fonseils were telling us, about, telling me about their travels around the world. And you know, I could just feel the, the adrenaline, the adrenaline rush. Like, ooh, tell me more. What else did you see? What else did you see? I want to see that. So I, I love the good life that, that I'm just going to be honest with you guys. And which is why I need this perspective. I need this verse so desperately. I need to be reminded that, look, my joy does not depend on these things. This, these are not the kind of things that are going to make me more happier in life. I need God. God is infinitely better. Having God is better than 10,000 trips to Camps Bay. That's what I need. So God is infinitely good to us. We can see this. And then in verse 27, verse 27 just summarizes uh, what we've already discovered about the wicked and their end. It says, For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. So the end of the wicked, as we've seen, is destruction. God will put an end to them. The world around us is, is probably not going to change. The wicked will continue to prosper, as we've seen. So just settle that in your mind. Settle, settle that in your mind and make peace with it. But I pray that we would be, as we think about their fate and their end, we would be guarded and warned against envying them. Because their end is a terrible end. There's nothing to envy in reality about the wicked. But I also found this uh, last verse quite interesting as I, as I conclude. Um, it says in verse 28, But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. I find that quite interesting. He 
keeps near to God that he may testify about God to others. So his experience, so his, his experience of the goodness of God overflows in evangelism. I think that's quite amazing. He's not keeping this thing to himself. The goodness of God just overflows. He wants others to know that, look, God is infinitely better. Let me tell you something. I'm, I'm staying close to God because he's so good to me. And I want you to come share what I'm experiencing right now. So I find that quite amazing. That it all overflows in evangelism and witnessing to others. And I pray that that would be our experience too. I pray that the psalm would inspire us to testify of God's goodness to others, to sinners, to wicked men, these wicked men that we envy. I pray that this psalm would inspire us to witness to them, witness God's goodness to them, that instead of envying them, we would warn them of the wrath to come and point them to Christ as the ultimate joy of all other joys in this world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful psalm. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word stirs us up and encourages us. I pray that you'd help us through the psalm to just fall deeper and deeper in love with you. That, Father, the things of this world would just lose their charm and their hold on us. That, Father, as we behold your glory and draw closer to you, we would fall less and less in love with the things of this world and that would seek our joy and satisfaction in you. We pray, Father, that you'd help us even in our witness to unbelievers, those who are lost, those who are perishing. I pray that you'd help us not to envy them, but to feel deep compassion and sorrow for them, to pity them and witness to them that they may join us in sharing your goodness, the goodness that we found through Jesus Christ. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.